Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the clasp of America's Bible bra. Broadcasting from Public Reality Radio, WPRR, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM. And you can also find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts or streaming on publicrealityradio.org. My name is Jeremy Bean, and with me in the studio today are my fellow Doubtcasters, Luke Galen. Hello. And Justin Schieber. Hello. Wait, that's minus one. Oh, yep. And uh, Dave Fletcher, unfortunately, could not be here today. He is currently engaged in an epic life-or-death battle between his face and his beard. If you really want to know the truth, <laughs> he's geeking out uh, with Doctor Who-type people at Comic-Cons. So. Yeah. Oh, okay. So... Have uh, either of you guys taken this ice bucket challenge that I'm seeing so much online I've not. on the YouTubes these days? I think if I get challenged, I will just be donating and because ice water scares me. Well, that's what I was thinking. I was, I was actually starting to see all my friends on Facebook nominating each other, and I was like, oh, shit, honey, do we have $100 in the account to spare? Because <laughs> right. I'm not going outside. See, I've doing been doing that before. It was cool because in, the fr- when I, in Nebraska, where I'm from, that's how you are supposed to bathe is a healthy dose every morning of ice water, and then you get beat with a switch by your parents, and that's how you wake up. Ah, it's adorable. <laughs> and frightening at the same time. Well, uh, the Catholic Archdiocese in Cincinnati actually has an issue with the Ice Bucket Challenge, uh, which I was surprised. How could you? <laughs> <laughs> is it a doctrinal you, issue? Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar with, with what this is, it's the, uh, the ALS Association. So this is uh, for Luke, Luke Eric's disease. Eight mile trophilateral sclerosis. A disease of nerve cells in the brain and spinal cord. A degenerative disease. And it's a terrible way to go. In fact, Michigan people might remember that's the way a lot of uh, Jack Kevorkian's early patients, mm-hmm. some of his patients were suffering from that. And so they opted to have him help them kill themselves because it was a, such a terrible way to go, fearing that you're going to choke on your own saliva or something awful. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, the ALS Association has come up with a great viral marketing strategy for uh, bringing in more donations. In fact, they've raised over $30 million. Of it's people. such a simple idea, but holy crap, it's yeah, really exploded. It really has. I, I'm, I'm impressed by these kind yeah. of strategies to, uh, to fund these kind of causes. And uh, it, the Ice Bucket Challenge has been incredibly successful basically you're challenged to either pay or if you are not going to pay a certain sum uh you dump a bucket of ice water over yourself uh, shaming yourself publicly i guess (laughs) so a great uh, disincentive against slacktivism but the cincinnati archdiocese has actually asked their followers and uh, the catholic schools in their district to refrain from donating to the als association and can anybody guess why Mm, embryos Yep. Mm. Oh, I was just guessing. The moral rights of embryos might be threatened. Uh, They're afraid that um, some of the research into fighting ALS is banking on the promise of fetal stem cells. And the only way you get those is from 
well, at least the way that researchers are currently getting them, are from five-day-old embryos left over from in vitro fertilization. Wait, so this is not related to giving embryos the ice bucket challenge? No, no. That would be murder. They're opposing that, and uh, they have come out and said that it's okay for the students to take part in the challenge. They just cannot give money to the ALS Association. They they say yeah. instead they should give to the John Paul II uh, Medical Research Institute in Iowa. That's one center they know is not going to be right, using right. stem cells. Of course, I think the counter-argument is even if you did have a moral problem with uh, destroying an embryo for research, right? these embryos are going to be destroyed anyways. They're mm. leftovers from in vitro fertilization. There is no potential for them to become living persons. Mm-hmm. Of course, their rationale is that if people knew that the embryo was going to be used for research rather than fl- flush down the toilet, that they would be what? More likely to have an abort? I don't understand the connection. Yeah, I'm not mm-hmm. sure. Well, here's the uh, a 2008 directive from the Vatican that explains their policy. The use of embryonic stem cells or differentiated cells derived from them, even when these are provided by other researchers through the destruction of embryos or when such cells are commercially available, presents serious problems from the standpoint of cooperation in evil and scandal. So they don't want to be associated with... They don't want to be associated with a scandal. Any of that evil. Now, uh, actually, the ALS Association has responded to the archdiocese. People actually can specify where they want their donations to be sent. Even if you did have this moral objection, it shouldn't prevent you from sending money to this to this uh, association. Mm-hmm. Uh, all you have to say is, my money is not for embryonic stem cell research, and your money won't go to that. But I, d- I don't know if that's an acceptable or no. enough compromise for uh, for Catholics. No, they don't do that. And in any case, with things like Planned Parenthood, the, the, the whole separation argument that's legally mandated between abortion services and contraception services, that doesn't stop... People from you know not giving not supporting them either because they claim that any money given to one area is just taken from another area and so it's all contributing to evil and blah blah blah. I'm, which would equally be a case against donating to the Catholic Church then because some of that money is going into the defense yes. funds for these pedophile or priests taxes, or paying your taxes. Or, yeah, yes. or or anything. So yeah. yeah, I think we need to evolve past or paying that. your employees because you don't know what they're going to spend it on. <laughs> Right. Part of this paycheck may very well go to your medicine and rent, but you could also buy a fifth of vodka with it, so <laughs> I'm not going to support it. Or go all. have an abortion or something. You know, uh, I don't want to pay for that. I understand the moral stance. I don't, I don't share it. It just bothers me in general to see ancient superstitions getting in the way of matters of bioethics. Especially when this one is on, is on such a popularity kick, mm-hmm. the donating. It's like all this is doing is, is hampering the the potential benefit that this can have. Right. I think without the insolment argument, I don't see any reason why one would object to using these stem cells uh, since there's such a chance for real benefit, for Mm -hmm. real reduction of human suffering. In a slightly related story, the New York Times recently covered another way in which religion sometimes complicates important debates going on in bioethics. The article is by Kevin Sack in the New York Times, A Clash of Religion and Bioethics Complicates Organ Donation in Israel. 
This was strange to me when I first read about it, but apparently uh, Israel has a serious, serious problem with organ donors. Their list of people who need a transplant far, far outstrips the supply of donations. When you compare them to other countries, their amount of donors, uh, people who are willing to donate organs, is much, much lower. For example, uh, the article points out in 2012, it had uh, 7.4 deceased donors per million of a population uh, which ranked it, the article says, in the bottom third of countries surveyed. To give you a comparison, the rate in Great Britain is 18.5. It's 25.8 in the United States and 35.1 in Spain. So compared to those rates, 7.4 mm-hmm. in Israel is quite low. Only 15% of Israeli adults are registered as donors. Nearly half of the population in the United States are registered as organ donors, which I think is an encouraging thing. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, 15% is, is quite low. And it seems strange. What would it be about Israel that would make people less willing to donate their organs? Mm, something about the Bible, the Old Testament. Help me out here. Correct. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. On this show, it's easy to answer questions like that. Ooh, 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 Jesus. Uh, no, this is Israel we're talking about. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yahweh. Yahweh. Yeah, basically, uh, the art- article attributes to uh, a bunch of things. Uh, first, it says nearly 2,000 years of Talmudic debate, which culminated in seeing this, this passage in Genesis uh, uh, around the great flood uh, when God extinguished, quote, all in whose nostrils was the breath of life. According to many Jewish scholars, they decided that this meant that was the criteria for determining when a life had truly ended. Has the breath of life been extinguished from it? Share a 19th century Talmudic code that instructed those that if a person appeared lifeless, a light feather was, be, was to be placed on their nose. If it does not flutter, then the person is certainly dead. So if you're ventilated, that yep. keeps you breathing. But that's not yep. your breath, though. That's the machine breathing for you. Apparently, that's to the breath of machine. many ultra-Orthodox and Orthodox rabbis, uh, they don't view it that way. They, Yes, you're right. The whole idea is ventilation um, because that's the best way to retrieve organs. So if you have mm. somebody who's deceased... And, you know, the modern medical standard is, you know, brain activity. If you're brain dead, well, we keep you on a ventilator uh, to keep those organs oxygenated so that they can be harvested and kept healthy. But to many ultra-Orthodox rabbis, then that means the person is still technically alive while on a respirator. Mm. And uh, perhaps there's some it. there's some scripture that's relevant to EEG patterns of the cortex <laughs> that we somewhere find. in Isaiah uh, <laughs> sec- second Isaiah mentions uh, FRI fMRI scanners. Some other objections too are just uh, the traditional view in of uh, the resurrection in Judaism. So many have this tradition; they do not want to see the body desecrated in any sort of way because the idea is God will reconstitute these bodies later on. Now, if he's able to do that with <laughs> – you, yeah. you can be raised from the dead thousands of years later from a decomposing corpse, but I can't replace that cornea <laughs> yeah. after it's been taken. <laughs> what am I, a miracle worker? <laughs> this guy's missing a pancreas. What do you want me to do about it? What this, what this created then was this huge underground organ trade. That's always good news. People going abroad, places like China and the Philippines, and buying kidneys – Dirt cheap on the black market. Those utilitarian countries will just kill people on order when you need a kidney. They're like, we have plenty of prisoners. What do you want, a pancreas, a liver? We'll have it ready by tonight. 
Because they're a consequentialist country, and they're like, better to, to kill one and save five. In fact, we have a one for five special this week. They weekend. kill everybody by tying them down to trolley tracks. Do what corneas do? No, I, I just need the, the pancreas because well, we can get your corneas. What's funny is this was known and the, the kind of exploitation that was going on was well documented. But many rabbis actually refused to take a public stand against these abusive organ trades because they felt snubbed. Uh, in 1986, Israel's chief rabbinate was actually willing to endorse the whole idea of brain death as the real criteria for determining death. Mm-hmm. But they were also afraid that doctors would kind of kind of force those determinations. I guess, in order to receive organs. Again, it's the Monty Python thing all over again. If you sign an don- organ donor card, right, the doctors are just going to be drooling over you waiting yeah. to steal your organs. So what they said is these panels to determine whether brain death had uh, occurred needed a rabbinical representative. Now, the doctors didn't want to have some rabbi giving them the authority uh, as to when somebody was scientifically brain dead or not. So they refused to allow that. And so many of the rabbis kind of snubbed them then and discouraged donation publicly and refused to take any kind of moral stand against the illegal trade. So this has put Israel in a really strange position. What do they do about this? At the moment, any kind of attempt to compensate somebody for an organ donation is illegal. But there are several people in Israel who are advocating for a kind of carefully controlled, regulated system where they could legally compensate donors, say, for a kidney or something, pay somebody for a kidney. In fact, uh, the American Society of Transplantation and the American Society of Transplant Surgeons have recently been arguing this themselves. And in July, they had a, uh, they had a pilot project to actually test would these kind of financial incentives work could they lead to more abuses down the road you know what is the what is the ethics of doing this some israelis favor using some kind of alternative compensation maybe tax credits or tuition vouchers for schools mm-hmm. long term health coverage so something other than a direct financial gift hoping to avoid abuse but I guess the most interesting thing and what I wanted, wanted to bring up from this article was um, what, they, what Israel has done is an interest, very interesting move. Their 2008 law, which criminalized compensation for organs, also had an amendment to it which authorized the health ministry to give preferential status on transplant wait lists to registered donors and those who've consented to a, uh, to a relative's donation. So in other words, if you sign your donor card, if you happen to need a, do- a donation at some point, you are fast-tracked on the that's, list. You're part of a buyer's club. Yeah, basically that's what they've turned it into. And now actually they find the rates are changing. There should be a way to exclude people who signed up onto the list only after they found the doctor that they're going to have a, need a heart replacement. I wonder how they deal with that. Like do you have to uh, – Where do I sign up? Yeah. <laughs> Need liver. I know you signed your donor card, but I'm afraid you had a pre-existing condition. <laughs> we don't want your faulty organs. Well, it's the classic libertarian thing of somebody who doesn't buy insurance, and then when the people, when the fire company comes by, you try to sign up then and there when your house is on fire or whatever. They, I find it kind of upsetting that you can't put aside religious objections to help a family member or someone who's desperately in need. But if you get a financial perk... They're suggesting $50,000 for a kidney. Well, pff, there you go. People are willing to do that. Or if it's, a, if it's kind of a 
insurance policy, well, hey, I might need one someday. Then you're willing to set aside your religious objections and donate. Soon we're going to be growing all our organs in labs anyway with 3D printers and such. Yeah. I'm just curious what you guys think about that. Do you think should – we, should we be allowed to do that here in the United States, just pay somebody 50 grand for a kidney? Mm. Well, it's the same thing with like, you know, whether adoption, whether you can buy kids or things like that. The, the true libertarian position would be it's your body. You can sell your kidney if you want. Right. But obviously the not everything should be open to the marketplace. That yeah. There are some things that are more sacrosanct than whether you could sell yourself or not because of the exploitation potential. Right. I think that the, the solution before we get to that, I'm willing to listen to that if the obvious thing that some countries are doing is just having an opt out procedure rather than an opt-in procedure for organ donation. So like right. I think it's in you know the sensible countries that we always talk about, Germany or Scandinavia, where they simply – you're opted on to the organ donation yeah, thing when you die. Unless, and if you don't want to, you can sign out because most yeah. people, what they do in this country is the opposite is that they the, – that you're opted out unless you opt in. Yeah. And they have a vast – Vastly more – like you mentioned the statistics internationally. There are some countries that have vastly more organs to donate mm-hmm. um, simply because that you're just automatically assumed to want to sign up. Why don't we proceed with that first before we get to the selling of children and such? Yeah, that seems like a pretty sensible way of, of dealing with it and nobody can really complain under that situation because it's easy to opt out. But yeah, clearly that would never fly in Israel because of the – because of the religious objections. Or ban motorcycle helmets because we need hun- young, young, healthy donors uh, killing themselves on the road without the helmets. motorcycle so. helmets. I'm exercising my freedom, Rick. Young, healthy man with organs. That's how we can increase the organ. Well, moving on to other news. Um, an interesting study came out of University of Connecticut. A couple of studies. One published in the Journal of Research in Social Stratification and mobility, which there's a journal for that. There's a journal for everything. (laughs) And the other published in Social Currents. Basically, the conclusion is if you want a job, don't list your religion anywhere on your resume. Apparently, religious discrimination in hiring is widespread. They uh, initially wanted to study this because they noticed between 1992 and 2010 Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in the United States, their allegations of of religious discrimination grew from uh, 1,400 to almost 4,000 cases. Whoa. That's a pretty big jump. Mm -hmm. So what's going on? Why this increased religious discrimination? So what they did is they created resumes for fictional college graduates to get across the idea of their religious affiliation. Somewhere in the resume, it would show extracurricular activities at university in some sort of religious mm-hmm. club. So if it was um, if they wanted to tag the person as Muslim, they joined a Muslim ca- uh, group or a campus Jewish service for a campus Jewish association would be placed if we wanted to make the uh, right. the target Jewish. Or a spaghetti dinner. For- well, uh, for the <laughs> flying spaghetti monster, they actually did throw in a nonsense religion. They oh, are, really? are a make-believe religion. Uh, Still trying to find the right word. Yeah. Jeremy, uh, keep going, they're, keep going. they're all make-believe. <laughs> Our position is they're all make-believe. Uh, they threw in a – they had something called a Wallonian. Okay. Yeah, uh, they they threw in uh, atheist and pagan into there also and uh, Catholic and evangelical Christian. And basically the conclusions were if you listed anything at all, your chances of getting hired were much lower. Overall, it was 19 percent fewer contacts – from 
uh, the applicants that just had no religious identification at all mm. uh, placed out of it. Nineteen percent fewer for the Here, religious. Here's response. my thing with that. Wow. Okay, so the headlines for that study when it was released were all like religious people are discriminated against. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. Which is somewhat misleading because of what you just mentioned, and that is that the mention of anything seemed to, to decrease relative to simply not mentioning anything. Yep. The problem is in this country is with what three quarters of the people Christian and some more other non-correct religions. You're assumed to be religious anyway, <laughs> unless unless otherwise established. Right. So we do have other studies that have been done that are more well controlled that that show that if if anything the, the the problem with this one is that when you mention a religion, it might have given the people the impression of that you're sort of a religious over the top zealot Flanders mm-hmm. type, right? Rather than just oh he's religious. So. Right. The, the the consensus from a lot of these studies where they manipulate the identity of the person's religion is that, yeah, not mentioning anything doesn't set up a context either way, but the person is probably still presumed to be the normal person who is religious. Yeah. Definitely when you mention that you're not religious, when you go out your way to say I'm an atheist or agnostic, the discrimination is greater, that the person is hired less. Well, and that's, that's what a more careful look at the data revealed. And you were right. A lot of the articles that covered this didn't – didn't get into depth with the numbers. It gave that perception uh, that it was just a religion over non-religion thing. But actually, uh, if you look at how the numbers broke down, this is by who received some sort of contact, either a phone call or some sort of follow-up on the resume. Uh, Now, the weird finding was that Jewish applicants faced almost no discrimination whatsoever. That was the really strange finding. Hmm. And that was done – they did this in New England and they did this in the American South. Where I would expect Judaism would not be as kosher. Um, I would I would expect it has something to do with the fact that Judaism isn't necessarily seen as a religious belief in so much as being uh, it, it more being identified as a as a cultural thing. It's an ethnicity, but also some evangelicals. That's a positive minority for them because they view them as being like that's a true. biblical mandate. This is the yeah. same with our policy towards they Israel. They want to employ them so that they can tell them to return to they, Zion. They want to they, yeah. they, they, well, bless Abraham. You're the key to the rapture, or you're a potential convert, or you're a validation of their religious thing. So that yeah. makes sense. It's still an in-group religion for if you're a Christian. Evangelicals got the most amount of respondents. Uh, pagans actually the second most. That's what I thought was interesting. Hmm. And uh, uh, the Wallolians, the <laughs> the invented one, it was in, in the middle there. Um, but yeah, scoring worst was Muslims. Uh, they only received a call back uh, 10, 10.7% of the time. Close second for being the most discriminated against were atheists. Yeah, I think the takeaway from this should be if you are a reviled faith or strongly non-believing – you're going to face the most amount of discrimination. Well, you, right. you mentioned those figures at the beginning of the increase in incidence of reported bias. A lot of that is that, as with any reports of things, that it's we don't have the actual numbers of the incidences. That could be an increase in people sensitized to and reporting things. We've probably all heard and we've talked about it on the show of increases in cases of perceived religious discrimination by Christians because mm-hmm. you're like, oh, he didn't let me call him a gay slur. You're oppressing my religion sort of thing. So my sense with this one is that when you have these like job discrimination things, a lot of it, when you ask about, well, what ha- what did you do that caused you to be discriminated against? It was the person that didn't just mention, oh, I happen to be a Christian, but it was something of beyond that. Like I tried to quote Bible verses yeah. or I tried to, I was wearing a t-shirt that said, you know, no Jesus go to hell or whatever, yeah, you I know, 
that's that. just generally annoying. Aggressive proselytizing. Right. And so you're not discriminated <clears throat> against just because you're religious. In those situations, you're discriminated against because you set off tripwires of yeah, he's yeah. a crazy fundy. I, I, behavior. I think that's more or less in line with Wallace and Wright's interpretation of their own data. Now, uh, one of these researchers is actually a Christian and runs a blog where the very thing he's looking for is the existence of religious discrimination in the workplace. But at least a cursory look at some of his posts there showed that, you know, he's a legitimate scientist. He's doing good research and being careful about his conclusions. Their take on it, they tied this into the whole secularization theory, the idea that religion is seen as more of a private matter. It's not that it's a problem being religious. It's that if you are making a point of sharing that with others, it's likely to create workplace conflict. Employers just don't want to mess with that, which is actually an attitude I can get more behind. I mean, I, I personally deal with some of this. I just redid my CV a couple of months ago, and I'm recognizing, like, my gosh, uh, so much of what I have here is all tied to atheism uh, in some sort of way. Much of what I've published, many of the presentations I've given. Okay, Professor they, Radisson. They all center around that. And is that going to hurt me? When Not if they start at the beginning of your resume. Else. If they start at the beginning, like, this guy went to Cornerstone. He's some kind of crazy <laughs> religious nut. We don't wait. Wait. What what's, happened to him? What's this? What? Yeah, well, then that concerns me even more if they do make that connection. So, I mean, I. I uh, I really don't want to see people discriminated against just for being a member of a religious organization. And if you do put your time into those things, you should be able to cite that as community involvement. But yes, the one conclusion you really can't draw that I think some wanted to is that this is some sort of witch hunt against religious people in the hiring sphere. And it's not. If you want a real witch hunt. (laughs) Good transition. Thank you. If you want real witch hunts to get upset about... Well, we got some for you on the show today. Wait, which hunt are we talking about? Uh, uh, uh. Our guest on the show is Leo Igwe. Uh, Leo Igwe is an award-winning human rights activist from Nigeria. He's also a research fellow with the James Randi Educational Foundation. He formerly served as the Western and Southern African representative to the International Humanist and Ethical Union. He's, I think, one of the more important people we've had on this show that you've probably never heard of. His work is mainly in Ghana, and he works there identifying children and adults sometimes who have been accused of being witches and cast out of their community or even worse. Our listeners might remember our episode 69 where we covered a similar phenomenon uh, of the witchcraft in Africa. I think Mm -hmm. that was in – oh, it was a different organization. It was Stepping Stones, Nigeria. There was Mm -hmm. some guy who rescued kids from witchcraft. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just like that. In fact, Leo Igwe is has been actually instrumental in setting up many of these these, uh, camps. They call them witch camps, safe sanctuaries for uh, people who have – otherwise been persecuted by their communities. It's the opposite of Jesus camps. And as we're going to see, a lot of times religious superstition really is used as a way to attack the most disenfranchised in society, the kind of unwanted members in these communities. We're going to turn it over now to Leo Igwe and talk about this very real, very serious problem and what some of us might be able to do in order to help. Thank you. 
Leo, thank you very much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. You're welcome. So you have a very fascinating story okay. and are doing a lot of good work. Uh, but uh, let's let's get a little bit of background first. Uh, you were raised in Nigeria. Yes. And at a young age, you yeah. were enrolled as a seminary student? Yes, yes. Yeah, I was uh, born in, uh, in the southern part of Nigeria, mm-hmm. which I call the... The Bible Belt, yeah. <laughs> the Bible Belt of Nigeria. <laughs> yeah, it's the Bible Belt of Nigeria. Yeah, because uh, if you really want access in terms of uh, politics or social programs, you just need to, you just need to hold the Bible. That's all okay. you need. That's the key to you know the the society in terms of programs and uh, power. Yeah. So, and um, being a Bible Belt, I attended um, Catholic uh, primary schools, mm-hmm. and uh, then I went to seminary because uh, this, um, mission schools are the same, maybe about the best we could mm-hmm. get in the, in my own part of the country. Yeah. So, uh, but uh, in the course of the my seminary formation, I studied uh, philosophy, and I was um, I was doing my theology program, maybe. For few, I did my theology program for a few months, let's say three months, then I couldn't take it any longer. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, I couldn't take it any longer. Philosophy so tends just, to do that. It tends to erode yeah. faith. Though. Yes, yes. And, and that was really the, the – I was very fortunate because I studied, you know, philosophy before the, I started theology. So it wasn't the other way around, you know. So, so, so it was like, I mean, if I had done it the other way around, maybe I would have been in the seminary because, you know, philosophy will be enlightening and you will, you will feel like staying, you know. But after philosophy, I was, they, they tried to teach me theology. It was too nonsensical for me, so I couldn't take it, yeah. And, and how did your, your family and community react to your growing doubts? Well, well they were suspicious uh, because if you doubt anything that has to do with religion and God, you know, it's like you are the devil, mm-hmm. you know, you are a monster, you know, you are evil. Yes. So because everything believe is identified with a virtuous life. So mm-hmm. religious belief is identified with a virtuous life. So if you doubt religious belief, it means that you are evil. So what I did was that I try. I moved away from from my own village and from my community. You know, I now moved. I, I was born in the in southeast, uh, mm-hmm. the southeastern part of Nigeria. So I moved to the southwest of Nigeria. So we are, you know, my family members were not there. I mm-hmm. searched, and uh, there wasn't that that pressure yeah. for me either to remain religious or to be religious. So I moved away to the southwest. That's where I'm currently living now, you know, um, or where my family is now. Then that was where, you know, I started rediscovering myself because it, when I left the seminary as well, it was like I wanted to live on my own terms. I don't want mm-hmm. to live as a result of somebody else's terms. What somebody wants me to be, I want to. Be, I, I wanted to be what I wanted to be, you know, and I wanted to live on my own terms. And that gave me that space to discover myself, not just as a humanist. And that gave me also that courage, you know, to establish the humanist movement, which for me was a kind of a platform for social engagement. Mm-hmm. Because I know that there are a lot of problems my society has been facing. My society is still facing, as I'm talking to you he- here now, mm-hmm. you know, as a result of superstition, as a result of religious fanatism and extremism. And I found the humanist outlook resourceful. You know, I found it useful, you know, in terms of contributing for social change, in terms of fighting you know, for social transformation. 
So these were not just abstract philosophical principles. You no. could see this making a difference in no, everyday life. No, no, no. You know, my philosophical training, you know, of course, exposed me to a lot of all those abstract things. Being, being, the, 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 can't we talk about the, the noumenon and the phenomenon and all that. So you, when you are reading it, you just ask yourself, I mean, what is all, what, what's this all about? And sometimes you, if you read metaphysics and religion, you could see some similarities. So... I was exposed to those philosophical thoughts and thinking. But, you know, one thing we don't know is that they have a way of also sharpening our cognitive skills. Mm -hmm. they, have, they have a way of making you not easily gullible, not, 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 is, not, is, um, not gullible, in other words, you cannot easily accept something. When, when somebody you know, says something, you have to ask questions. That is it. The philosophical training made me, I cultivated the habit of asking questions. It sharpened my critical thinking skills. And, and I found out that many people are suffering, many people are dying because of gullibility. You know, because they live in a situation where they think that is, is, virtue, is virtuous to be gullible. You know, when you are gullible, in other words, when you can easily accept what a pope says, what the bishop says, what the traditional ruler says, sometimes even what politician says, you know, that makes you maybe a good citizen and a good person. But no, I discovered the virtue in skepticism. I discovered the virtue in critical thinking. And that was why I said, it was not just a virtue for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it should be something I should put at the disposal of the society. That's it. That's how I drew the connection. And today, when I look back to that decision, I think that, you know, it remains one of the best decisions I've made in my life. The virtue of critical thinking and trying to spread that around and, and hopefully see it make a real change in others' lives the way it did yours. Uh, what specifically were some of, the, some of the social ills you saw around you that you felt resulted from this gullibility or this lack of skepticism and critical thinking? In fact, they're numerous. There's so many. Okay? So first of all, I grew up in a community where people believe that they can make money using human body parts. Hmm. In other words, you can go to a witch doctor, and a witch doctor could tell you, okay, get the head of hmm. somebody in your family. Get the intestine, get the eyes for some kind of ritual sacrifice. Hmm. Yes. I'm not saying this maybe because I want to paint Africans and you know, barbaric people. This is what is going on. Yeah. It's what is going on in my society, and it's a fact. Because it's a social fact, the impression you make out of it, that is your business. Mm -hmm. But it is such a horrendous, such a horrifying, such a traumatic experience that I found out that now, as I was growing up, I had to ask questions. Mm -hmm. Can you really make money? in any form, using human health and, uh, as, a ritual, as a form of ritual sacrifice? The answer is no. <laughs> but to my people, yes, mm. they can do it. And because of that, and, and you know why he's striving, this narrative, this superstitious narrative has not been challenged. Mm -hmm. And even if you have some doubts, you don't express that openly. So that if you try to question things like that, people will think that, oh, you're being a bit foolhardy, you know, you're being stupid or you're taking unnecessary risk. Mm -hmm. So, like now, some, uh, on several occasions, you will read in the newspapers that, oh, you saw some uh, torso or, you know, a, a kind of body without a head or, mm. or, or legs or something chopped off. Or you, saw, you will see somebody with the intestines removed and you ask yourself, they said, ah, it's for rituals. Now, mm. ritual, you must have had maybe the case of the albinos in Tanzania and East Africa, or maybe if, if you've not heard about that, they had the problem, you know, in the East Africa whereby people... Um, 
uh, with albinism, you know, mm-hmm. they believe that their skin has some magical powers, you know, and that they, they, when they kill them, they try to use the skin of the albinos, you know, for rituals, which they think that can make people lucky, uh, make people fortunate or enhance their fortune or success. Yeah. So, so it's not just – it's not always just random. This becomes a way to target particular individuals yes, in the community. Yes, yes, yes. The target – People with albinism. Yeah. Again, they target people with uh, hunchback. I don't know whether you, you, yeah, you have things like that here. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, because they have to believe that the hump has something in it which they can use for ritual purposes. Huh. So what they do is that they get these people and really butcher them like animals and take and take the hump away. So you know, I was growing up with this, and you know, as a child, when you ask questions, they say, "Shut up." Mm-hmm. When you when you grow up, you get to know this. You know, just. Stay away from things like this. And, you know, as I was growing up, I keep asking, how, but, uh, how, where, why? Mm-hmm. Nobody was ready to give me answers. Even up till now, there are still people that feel that, yes, I have not grown up enough to understand the mystery and the mysticism and the magical power behind it. And I said, enough is enough. Yeah. Because skepticism has a way of equipping you, emboldening you to ask those questions. Yeah. And when you can't get the evidence, when you can't get the evidence-based answers, you keep asking. And then you can transform a questioning process into a, ca- a campaign for you know, social uh, improvement, for social change, and for positive change. I'm cur- Do you think there's a lot of other people who maybe have strong doubts but uh, they just haven't been equipped with the right tools to to question in that way or haven't been emboldened to mm-hmm. question. I imagine there are people out there hearing your message and yes. saying, I've been thinking this yes. my whole life. Yes. I've just never had the courage yes. to, to yes. say it. Yes, there are. And that is why sometimes when you paint Africans with the same brush, mm-hmm. oh, Africans are deeply religious, Africans are what do you call it, dogmatic, those things are not representative. That they, that they misrepresent the situations. There are mm-hmm. people that are religious, yes. There are fanatics, yes. There are superstitious people, yes. There are also skeptics. There are critical thinkers. But there are also critical thinkers in the open or who have gone public. There are people who are covert skeptics or Mm -hmm. skeptics in the closet, you see. So, but look at the challenge. Those who are in 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 the closet, the covert skeptics, sometimes they don't want to do anything. For you, for them to be publicly and visibly identified with overt skepticism. So, and that is why you see these problems going on. And again, that is why you don't see it happening, let's say, in every family, mm-hmm. every time, and every day. Yeah. So, in other words, there are people who don't do it because they don't believe in it. But they don't take action openly against those who are doing it. Mm-hmm. And that is why you see some of these atrocities being committed in the open. Like, when we talk about witchcraft accusation, there are many Africans that don't believe in witchcraft, that they think that people are superstitious. But they don't want to get entangled in the campaign against it. So they do nothing. Because of that, the practice continues. So that is a, that's a challenge. And that is why I think what Africa needs now is proactive skepticism. So it's not enough to tell me, ah, I don't believe in this. What are you doing yeah. to address it when people commit atrocities in the name? And if you do nothing... If you shrink from taking action, you are tacitly also endorsing what those people are doing. And that's why the fanatics, the extremists, be them religious and superstitious, are acting with this kind of impunity. Hmm. Well, I mean, you are, a, you are a good example yourself as someone who has faced real-life suffering for standing out 
for yeah. critical thinking and skepticism. Yeah. Um, I, I read that you have you personally have been jailed several yeah. times. Yeah. Uh, your family members have been attacked mm-hmm. uh, due to this. So, yeah, it's a it's a real risk. But yes, clearly yes. you feel it's it's worth it. Yeah, it is a real risk. But now in, in 2008, a high school boy mm-hmm. beheaded the uncle for rituals. OK, you know, he went to a, a witch doctor. They said, OK, you need the head of somebody in your family. And he went and beheaded the uncle. This one happened in my village. Hmm. I, I didn't read it in newspapers. Now, what happened to that, that man? He's dead. Hmm. So it, it, the risk I face, for me, is a reflection of the risk everybody faces right. in that society. Anybody who lives in a society where people believe that they can behead you, take off your head or take your eyes or intestine to go and make rituals is at risk. Yeah. So all of us are at risk. That's an excellent point. Yes. So why can't one person take a risk in order to bring an end or yeah. to reduce the risk other people face? So I can, I can, I can also sacrifice, you know, say a kind of my own life or take, or put my own life more at risk in order to reduce the risk other people face. Mm-hmm. I think that this is a better path to follow. You know, yeah. instead of just you know being there, keeping quiet, and being at risk at the same time, yes. Right. And again, yes. Now I have I have taken those steps. I think that less number of people are at risk today because of what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. So that even if I face the risk, but because other people are less at risk today, I feel happier with it, even with the risks I face. And you and others like you provide an example to everyone else who's slightly more, you know, who may be thinking the same thing but yeah. more afraid to speak out. Yeah. They get to look at your example. Yes, yes, say, yes. Like now, there are more people who are get, getting yeah. involved now because it was like, ah, Lou, I can't do this thing you're doing. You know, mm-hmm. I, I agree with what you're doing, but I don't have the courage to do it. These are what some of my friends told me, you know. But, you know, right now, people are finding out that, oh, no, it is, in quote, not really as dangerous. It's dangerous, like I must say. But, you know, some people, like my family members, many of them thought I would have been killed by now. Mm-hmm. Okay? And even when I faced all the troubles, they would say, okay, look, we told you. But like I said, I'm not even driven so much by the risk I face, but by the risk the whole society faces. Mm-hmm. Look at the number of children that are abandoned in the name of witchcraft. Look at the number of women that are driven out, beaten up. Look at the number of them that are killed. You know, some of them are killed and nobody who has a trace of to, as to how they were killed and where they were killed. They are silently killed because of the charged nature of the belief. So if we live in such a situation, yeah. for me, it is, it, for me, it is, I, I would say, yes, it is okay for me to risk my life in, in, in the quest of trying to secure the, situ- the situation, particularly for vulnerable people who don't have a voice. You get it? Today I can say I have some voice. You get it? But let me use my voice to speak on their behalf. Yeah. It sounds like I mean I before before reading about you and your work I wasn't all that familiar that there even was a problem with human sacrifice I wasn't aware that that was a, a practice and I imagine some of these some of these issues are really hard to quantify because yeah. some of it so much of it goes you know below Under, the yes radar. underground yes yeah. that is a problem and that is why sometimes people will ask you how many you know here particularly in our own mm-hmm. part of the world. I'm talking over here in the U.S. and Europe. People, are, you know, uh, want to have sat- statistics, okay? Mm-hmm. And that is where we have failed. In spiritual matters, religiously, uh, in, on, when it comes to religious issues, sometimes it's difficult to quantify what people do or refuse to do. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to quantify the victims because the people, it's often the people who are victimized, 
you know, uh, nothing is said. They, they can't, they can't yeah. come out and say, yes, I'm victimized. So sometimes it's a silent war going on. That's what I've said. It's, there's a silent war going on. They, they're not using bombs. They're not using uh, Kalashnikovs. They're not using uh, uh, drones. They are using superstition. Yes, and he's killing people silently, he's eliminating people silently. So what we just do is that when we have one graphic case, we try to promote yeah. it so much, you know, so that we can use it to drive home the message. We can use it to pass across the message and get people to understand that, yes, it may be one or two happening this year, we know. It, but there may be 10 or 20, we don't know. So, but since we have known one or two, please let us put all our energy and make sure that even this one does not happen again. Yes, one of those particular things that you have had a, a good hand in popularizing and, and bringing awareness to the problem, making it less of a silent yeah. uh, problem, is, again, the witchcraft accusations in Africa. Yeah. I, I would, I'd like to know more about the background of this. There are so many dimensions to it, mm -hmm. okay? Now, um, of course, there's always this notion sometimes European and African scholars, they try to tell you maybe in Africa they have no religion, they have no culture, they have no civilization, maybe until maybe the Europeans came and said, oh, yeah, this is culture, this is this is religion. I think, I think uh, you know, is is such a, a very, you know, a case of misrepresentation. Mm -hmm. People had their, made sense of their own life in their own way, you know, and of course there were contacts, there were influences from other cultures, you know, just mm -hmm. like also there were influences on other cultures here. So, Witchcraft, magical thinking, mystical thinking was what was dominant. Many people didn't have access to what we call the canons of modern science, you know, and, and uh, many people just based their, um, their own explanation of events by, through mystical thinking or using um, magic. So it is, it is within this kind of um, terrain, it is within this kind of framework that you see they believe in, in witchcraft tribes. But it is not every case mm -hmm. that people associate with witchcraft. Mm -hmm. In other words, it is not everything people are doing. It is not right. every case of misfortune that people associate with witchcraft. So, it is, so witchcraft is a label which is applied. Mm -hmm. it is a, it's a label generated by people and applied on others. And who are the others that usually get this applied? I mean, what, what would gain you getting accused of being a witch? Now, you risk being accused if you are, if you are, if you are getting old, mm -hmm. aging, elderly yeah. people. These are people at risk. Yeah. Yes. You risk being accused if you're a woman. You risk being accused if you, are, um, if you don't have children. Because children are kind of, um, they provide some kind of social support. Right. So a woman... In a family, is stronger if the woman has children. But you may have children, but they are not educated. They are children that can't withstand any kind of um, a kind of oppression, mm -hmm. as the case may be. Um, you also risk being accused um, if you're a widow, if your husband is dead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's, it seems to be the most vulnerable social. Yeah, these are yeah, yeah 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 these are the vulnerable, and that's why there's there's a power factor, yeah. you know, when it comes to witchcraft, and that is why. You, 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 many people believe that there are some spiritual forces and that these spiritual forces can be used mm -hmm. or manipulated for good or for ill. But as to who is that person being used by the spiritual forces to cause my misfortune becomes another, another, mm -hmm. another uh, brings another dimension to it. And so the vulnerable people are the people that can easily have these levels applied on them without resistance. Mm -hmm. And that is why when you look at the whole scenario, if you go to the Cong uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, the street children that are accused are children 
orphans, children whose um, maybe parents are dead or separated, or children born to a woman who is married off to another uh, man or something like that. Or you go to... Uh, I've heard deformities are very common, like that will... Yes, yeah. or children in, 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 in Ghana, children who are deformed, children who are, who are disabled, you mm-hmm. know, who are born disabled, you know, who are a kind of a burden to the parents in terms of management because many people give back to children with little or no resource yeah. <laughs> if they don't have the means to take yeah. care of children. So when the child comes now with a kind of deformity which they cannot imagine, they think, yeah, I'm cursed. Why is it that this person's child was born mm-hmm. Abled. No, no, nothing wrong with him or her. Amai is born maybe without a hand or born without, you know, this or that or born with, you know, very big skull and all that. So many of them start questioning. And that is when they start evoking the magical, mystical, witchcraft narratives. This is what they use to make sense of that. And before you know, they want to get rid of that child. You know, because the presence of that child is a presence of evil. The presence of that child haunts them. The presence of that child, you know, makes them look uh, look at themselves as people who have been cursed or who are kind of under the radar of the devil, you know, and for yeah. you know for oppression and uh, maltreatment. So, so it, it seems that these the the superstitious elements play play very well into the hand of of real human needs and tragedies. I mean, there's there's a burden. There's a burden placed on the community. It's just instead of coming together and taking care of it in some sort of way, these, yes, these in practical are, way, are cast aside. Yes, yes. You see, you see now, but the, not everywhere. You've you've worked in these refuges before mm-hmm, for mm-hmm. these children. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you tell us more about that? Uh, the particular communities or sanctuaries where people can um, who are accused of witchcraft mm-hmm. go to live. Yes, 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 yes. In Nigeria, there was you know there's still a place where these children are taken to, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, What happens there, of course, when people experience any form of misfortune, yeah? Mm -hmm. Divorce, marital issues, infertility, business failure, that starts from their jobs, accidents. They try to look for an explanation. Mm -hmm. And many times, again, there are, what I call the occult entrepreneurs. They are the occult producers and managers. You go to them with your problem and they give it an occultic wrapping. Mm. They, they, they package it. In other words, they make you to understand, look, there is somebody yeah. in the family who is responsible. And you say, hmm. And by, through the interview, the person can maybe give you a clue or through code reading, get you to say, oh, is this child or is this person? And immediately is identified, the question is elimination. Because when you eliminate the person, that is the only way to restore the moral integrity of your family. Hmm. So you now go, and immediately such a person is identified. People are treat the person in a very wicked way. You know, they treat the person a cruel way. Hmm. So, so these children, they're beaten, they're burnt with acid, they have fuel pulled on them. They just try to eliminate them. Just like when there is something evil, like, like maybe there's a poisonous snake that gets into your room and you have a stick on your hand, the next thing you you have to you wow. do hit it on the head and make sure it dies right away. <laughs> that is the way they look at these things. So that is why it is dangerous. Believe in witchcraft is a kind of a virus. It's poisonous to the communities. So these children are the ones who suffer that. So what they do is that they drive them out. So these um, shelters were established Mm-hmm. And I was involved in rescuing some of these children from these communities and taking them to these shelters, you mm-hmm. know. But, of course, there were, there were challenges. There were challenges because, first of all, the government felt that it was giving 
we were giving uh, the government a bad image because we were bringing out the stories and bringing out the photos right. and they, you know try to highlight the problem. Like I said, it is important. We get people to understand the scale of the problem we're having yeah. because when people understand the scale of the problem, then they know right. the kind of resource, the kind of attention to give to it. But if they don't have the scale of the problem, they can't do anything. Yes. Yeah. So that was what we were doing, you know, try to get people to understand the scale of the problem we are having. But, of course, the, the government, the local government, local authorities were not very happy with it. It's easier to just bury the, the Good, problem. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Allow that's, it go that's... on the ground, okay? So yeah. that, is, that's what, that was what they wanted, you know. And that is not, I thought, that the, I, I thought and I still think it's, get, it's important to get the world to understand the complexity of the problem, the complicated yeah. nature of the problem, the graphic nature of, of the abuses going on. And I know that when you do it that way, groups might get involved in some form or another because we need a kind of, a, um, um, how do you call it, a, a approach from different ends yeah. you know, to get this problem you know, resolved. That's, that's what I've, I've, I've seen uh, people talking about this issue, even responding to some of your articles, um, okay. saying, saying that, well, we need to address the economic aspects of this yeah. and, uh, you know, and the problems of resource scarcity and everything mm-hmm. else uh, before mm-hmm. this is truly going to be taken care of, which, mm-hmm. which you acknowledge. You just add, we also need to address the beliefs behind sure. it. Sure. Sure. Do you know uh, what? Let me tell you why it is important. Mm-hmm. Beliefs, people's beliefs, they shape their action. Mm-hmm. They determine their action. B- beliefs are like frames. Mm-hmm. Okay? Actions are like the content. Beliefs, they frame the content. Like now, I think it was Kant that said, you know, uh, forms without content is empty. Mm-hmm. And content without forms, you know, they're blind. You know? So the, 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 the beliefs are like the framing that they, that they, they you know, that co- actions are the content. So it is the, it is the belief that shape people's action. Yeah. So I'm so interested in the belief. I'm interested in it because a lot of people who said, oh, you can still believe in witchcraft, but don't abuse children. I said, false. Germans will say, false. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the, the Germans will say. No, not at all, please. Don't tell me that. I, now, Am I going there to tell people what to believe? Not really, okay? There's freedom of belief, but there is also freedom to criticize belief. There right. is freedom to hold contrary beliefs. There are freedom to question beliefs. So I want a free inquiry atmosphere. Yes. That's what I need. At the very least, I'll allow people to actually discuss this in their communities without, yeah, without fear of reprisal. Reprisals, yes. I found this was interesting. You know, of course, you mentioned we started the interview. Uh, you mentioned the kind of uh, the privilege of some is attached to these beliefs, yeah. uh, especially uh, the what did you call them? The occult specialists? Yeah, the occult entrepreneurs. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, entrepreneurs. <laughs> yes. One of them in particular, Helen. Opabio. Yeah. Opabio. Yeah. Yes. She was uh, became infamous in in uh, the UK and over here in the United States yes. after all these documentaries yes. featured how she was mm-hmm. she was promoting this idea that yeah. uh, many of these children are witches. Yes, and even had graphic videos with depicting yes. children, witch children, yes. children going out flying and, out at night and going yeah. to attack other people, That's eating it. dead bodies, yes. and things like that. Yes, you see, you see, that is the problem. You know. We also have issues on, okay, of course, the film industry as an artwork and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, where does the, where lies the limit and all that? You know, I am happy that at the end of this world, many people around the world are, are beginning to understand the kind of poison Helen Upabio has been spreading. Mm-hmm. You get it. So now he's not spreading this poison in a in a in a in a culture or among the people that are. 
that have a lot of skeptical, uh, uh, I don't know how to call it, is it skeptical genes or something like that? Or mm-hmm. I, I'm talking about immunity against yes. the poison. Yes. Do you get it? People with a, a lot of antidote, you know, in their system. The, he's spreading it amongst people with whose system cannot resist yeah. <laughs> these things. That is the danger. And that is why Helen Okwabio and her ministry are dangerous, mm-hmm. you know, to cultural uh, reformation, cultural renaissance, they're dangerous in terms of um, uh, the rights of people, you know, uh, uh, the rights of children. The, what she's doing put many children at risk, endanger the life of not only children but also elderly people because it rich, the, his activity, her activities are recharging the witchcraft narratives yeah. and even, you know, bringing so many dimensions to it. So that was a problem. And I am happy that... She eventually lost out because, if, because initially she brought a lot of court cases. She clamped down on yeah. her program. She sent her church members to disrupt a seminar we held, just a seminar to discuss. Like you said, we need a kind of an uninhibited and unhindered atmosphere where we can look at all these beliefs and claims. Yeah. Okay, so but we took this seminar to the to her the headquarters of her church. She mobilized more people than those who attended our seminars yeah. <laughs> to, to overtake the place yeah. and and all that. So because she doesn't want that kind of free expression, free examination, free discussion of witchcraft narratives, which is what we need, you know, yeah. to enlighten people. So. So, but I'm, I'm, I'm happy that the board, you know, you know uh, many people around the world are beginning to understand that. She wanted to come here. You know, that was in 2012. Yeah. You know. She yeah, has but we, backers here in the yeah, United she ha- States. Yeah, she has supporters here. surprising. Yes. But, yeah. And she has backers even in the UK and I guess in many other parts of the world. You get it? But it is, I'm happy that, you know, the message has been sent. Even though I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think that she has had that message very well. Yeah. But the message has been sent there that, look. You know, what we are doing, people are watching, people are not happy with it, and we are going to stop her, or we're going to stop her any time we get a wink of what she's doing, you know, you know, yeah. and to make sure that she, she stops spreading this poison. It does lead me to a further question, though, is uh, th- this is, you know, this is done under the guise of, of Christianity, yeah. in, in particular a kind of Pentecostal version of Christianity, yeah. which I hear is on the rise yeah. throughout Africa. Yeah. How do you view the role of Christianity and Islam, mm-hmm. the two of the major religious influences, yeah. as playing into all of this? Is it is it a help? Does it help at all in uh, countering some of the more superstitious narratives, or is it a hindrance? Do you think? Um, if I'm to say it, you know, you know, there isn't anything that is human. You might not get something positive about it. Right. right. Okay. Yes, because. Religion is not divine. Religion is human. Mm-hmm. Even the idea of divine is human. You know, we created those divine, those constructs on divinity. So, of course, people have always asked me this question. They try to put me in a, a situation whereby, is it a force of evil or a force of good? Okay? Now, I want to say it because re- Islam, religion, superstition, witchcraft, they're all irrational notions. They are all superstitious notions. And at the root of this problem is irrationalism, is superstition. Mm-hmm. Is, uh, is supernaturalism. Based on that, Islam and Christianity are part of the problem. Mm-hmm. But I know that there are Christians, individual Christians, who will tell you, yes, my Christianity doesn't accommodate this. Mm-hmm. If there is something uh, I find that is evil in my mind, I pray for it and God will answer my prayer or whatever. I pray against it. Okay? Mm-hmm. In other words, they don't just get out to burn children, attack children, persecute them. I cannot put them on the same box with people who also get children locked up, beat them, starve them to death or something, all in the name of exercising them. I can't put them on that same box. 
You get it. But I will tell you that Islam and Christianity are part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Now, let me, let, 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 me, let, me, let me explain again why I think it's, a, it's part of the problem. Recently, you may, you may have heard that Pope Francis, you know, recognized mm-hmm. what, he call, what is called the International Association of Exorcists. Yeah, yeah. Do you get it? Now, for me, I don't know. I was, I was so sad the day I had that. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I'm still very sad. And I still don't have... Everything has been the, indicating yes. that he's a more enlightened yes, pope. Yes, yes, you know, yeah, that's what I'm saying. You know, I don't believe it. Okay, I don't believe it. Yeah. I think that I think Pope Francis is acting out of pressure. Mm-hmm. He 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 became a pope at a time the the the, the, the how do you say you know the um, Catholic Church the the profile of the Catholic Church. Yeah, or very bad uh, PR we might say yes. here in America. Public relations, Pub- public relations. disaster. Yes. The, the, of course, the pedophile cases, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Vatican Bank, corruption there, here and there, so many other problems. So he's trying to a kind of, a kind of uh, uh, launder the image. He's trying to, yeah. you know, uh, improve on the image of the Catholic Church. He's acting out of pressure. Mm-hmm. You know? So that's why he's doing those things. And when he recognized the International Association or whatever exorcists, I was saying, come on, this is a medieval pope. Yeah. Okay, look at it. Because, because exorcism, witch hunting, is a form of exorcism. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that whether witch hunters, whether they're priests or what they call the witch doctors or traditional, what they do is that they try to do some, some incantation to remove the witchcraft powers from the person who is accused. So, so recognizing that is recognizing witch hunting. Sanctifying exorcism is sanctifying witch hunting. And, and like I told you, the, 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 the impact the, is going to have a lot of impact, not even in Rome, which, which I know that many people don't care about what the Pope says, or even in, in many parts of the United States. I know that many people here, particularly the white uh, Catholic uh, followers, they don't care of much of what, uh, what they don't care so much about what the Pope says. But it's going to have a lot of impact. Yeah. In places like Africa, where they have the immunity is still very low, like I told you, <laughs> because it they, they don't have the antidote to to contain and counteract, you know, uh, this the, the poisonous messages, you yeah. know, the, that coming out as a result of that. So that is why I'm trying to say that the the, the, the Catholic Church or the church, the Christian uh, religion is also part of the problem. Yeah, I, I think we have like over here we have the attitude where like okay, so he endorsed a group of exorcism yeah. exorcists. Yeah. Well, that's a curiosity. It gets buried on the back page of the newspaper, newspaper. as one of those stranger than fiction stories. Good. We rarely encounter this happening in our communities that we're aware of. It yes. does happen, actually, yeah. but we we rarely see it. Yeah. And we don't think of how this is going to impact Good. people throughout the world. Yeah. And, and we need to. Yeah. You know? Yes. And that is a problem. That's a, that, is, that is one thing I said. You know, we, we, we should start taking a global approach mm-hmm. to some of these issues. Because sometimes people have this feeling that, oh, yeah. You know, like now when something like that is said, because of the way people, uh, you know, live in their own society, they think it's not an issue. It's a lot of issue. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you. Pope Francis, by virtue of that, by that same pronouncement, for me is a disaster. Hmm. Is a disaster, particularly when it comes to our efforts to stop witch hunting. Because many uh, many Catholic priests now are going to come up formally and informally as exorcists, and whatever they do is that any little problem you have, they say, "Oh, it's a witchcraft. Oh, it's evil spirit." They're going to uh, remove it 
from you or they're going to expel it from you. I mean, I mean, Pope was talking about, uh, you know, uh, is it seeing the devil or something? You know, he was in the, in the mm-hmm. report, he was talking about the fact that, you know, he could identify the devil in somebody, the devil. Yeah. In somebody? Well, so if the, the pope? pope, if the Pope can do that. <laughs> do you, what do you expect? Yeah, right. What do you expect in the communities? Now, this might be on a very, you know, a different note. There was something that is happening in my community now. I was told that a Catholic priest came and um, performed exorcism in my mm-hmm. own community. Yes, mm-hmm. in southeastern Nigeria, they just told me. And in the course of that, he identified the tree, trees where the... We are the, we are, uh, he says evil spirits we are living, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know how to really describe it because, you know, when you talk about living, you talk about a house, but, you know, maybe you can help me. Maybe you in, know. indwell the trees <laughs> or something <laughs> like that. I don't know. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But that is the notion. The notion is that the, um, the evil spirits, we are using the trees as operational basis. Okay. So, and you know what happens when he, had, when he points at a tree and said the evil spirits are operating from here? What they do? They cut it down. So they ended up cutting down a tree uh, that belongs to a powerful person. Take note. Mm-hmm. And the guy, the, the guy wasn't in the community when that happened. So when he came back, he was very upset. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Understandably, right? you take it down my tree. Yeah. So you had to go to the police. Yeah. You know? So the thing has been causing a lot of problems in the communities. Okay. okay? So, so now, like I said, he's now empowering these people. Yeah. He's now telling them, please go ahead. He's not making people now. They start seeing devils everywhere as a result of their problems. That is the damage the Pope is doing to mm-hmm. us. And the last Pope, or, what, or the one before the last, uh, apologized, you yeah. know, sometime at the 2000, John of that, Paul, John Paul yeah. apologized for, the, for the atrocities. Mm-hmm. This one has started the same atrocity again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. And we need to tell him, we need to call him to order. Yeah. Yes. Well, Thank you for uh, thank you for sharing your story and uh, and for all the work you do to actually make a difference in these areas. Again, it's sometimes at great personal risk to yourself and and to your family. What I'm wondering is for listeners of this show, and we do have a global audience. Yeah, how can we be a part of this global solution and and help you? Are there organizations we can donate to or ways we can spread the word? Yeah, there there are, there are organizations uh, you can donate to and. Uh, I know that there are many organizations that are doing work in, our, in, mm-hmm. in, in this area. They're increasing in their number. And, um, Do you have I know, any that you would like to... Uh, no, I think, I think foundation, foundation Beyond Belief, they're doing okay. some work. You know, mm-hmm. um, they have this, what they call uh, the Pathfinder Project, and uh, which um, is, is slowly metamorphosing or changing to... The, the, they have to... Is, be, is going to tend to what they call the Humanist Service Corps project. Okay. Yeah, so they, they're going to do some work in Ghana, the witch camps and all that, so people can support them. Cool. Yeah, and, the, and of course, I know that the Center for Inquiry is doing some work in mm-hmm. Kenya, you know, and then maybe in some other places, you know, the, the people can also support them. Um, International Humanist and Ethical Union, they're also doing some great work, you know, supporting mm-hmm. some groups. You know, and all that. So, uh, the, the 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 happy thing, or the what I'm happy with now, is that there are many organizations that are coming out. You know, that are trying to do some do something to help us. But more importantly, I always tell people, don't be restricted in terms of your support by what I say or what I recommend. Mm-hmm. Do what you think you can do. Yeah. Like now, giving me a space to share this, mm-hmm. my story with you. Is a form of support. Mm-hmm. Yes, 
It is a form of support, helping put the news out there. It's a form of, like I told you from the beginning, let us put, let us get people on to understand the scale of this problem. Everybody knows how he or she could support. Many times when we issued press releases, all of a sudden you see people putting it in their blog and all that. It's because they have gotten to know the urgency of the matter. Mm -hmm. That's how they gave us support. And that's how we have succeeded so far, either in stopping Helen from coming here or in publicizing what she's, she, she wanted to do in the UK or, or, or publicizing the, the visit of a homophobic pastor you know, to Australia and all that. It is because we have people out there who now understand it. Mm -hmm. So those who are helping us publicize this, that giving us, for me, you know, support, I, I, I value even much more than money. So if there is any little thing you can do, put it on the blog, may, you know, organize a small meeting, or maybe if somebody is coming around, let the person come and inform you about what is going on. I think it can also help us so that bit by bit by bit, I think that we can slowly, you know, collapse this structure of witch hunting, this structure of witchcraft accusation and abuses in the name of superstition or magical thinking. And such a good goal to put our efforts behind. So you heard that, listeners. Do what you can to share these stories, to, to promote critical thinking in your communities and around the world. And a great way you can start uh, by doing that is to check out uh, Leo Igwe's writings. Uh, we're going to have a link to several of his articles on our blog and some of the organizations he just mentioned Check that out at www.doubtcast.org. And Leo Igwe, thank you so much for what you do around the world to promote better lives through critical thinking. And thank you for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Yeah, Thank you so much also for all that you do to get some reasonable doubt out there. <laughs> Well, that was depressing and inspiring in equal measure. <laughs> For more on the psychology behind the phenomena of witchcraft superstition, we turn to our resident Dr. Professor Luke Galen for this episode's installment of God Thinks Like You. We're going to call it Witch Thinks Like You, and then it'll lead to an Abbott and Costello routine. Witch Thinks Like You. Witch Thinks Like You. Who? The World Health Organization? No, they don't think like you. Which? Certainly not. In episode 69, the listeners might remember we covered a similar thing with witches, and uh, you've probably heard that a lot of these beliefs fit a similar template. In fact, there's like a whole sociology of witches. You can take entire courses, semesters of things like, you know, which the history of witchcraft and, and that where they tie it into basically, um, you know, social causes about why marginalized people, often women on the community, like, you know, the Salem witch trials and fits a profile in, in Europe when there was the witch scare. There seems to be specific people that are designated as problems and then then the religion part takes over. But what I think is interesting is to strip it down even further into the psychological bedrock of why people seek out causes or seek to blame phenomena like floods or disasters or sick children, the village being, you know, having misfortune. Why is it that we tend to designate causes of that that are often other people? So another phenomena that's similar to the witchcraft uh, accusation thing is the evil eye. I don't know if I don't remember ever talking about this on the show before. Mm -hmm. This is fascinating. I don't. We haven't talked about it, and I didn't even. I just thought that was like a 
uh, when somebody's glaring at you, yeah. I just thought that was what the evil eye was. It's I didn't really know it was culture. a whole superstitious thing built around it. Yeah, it's not really part of our culture. Uh, my one of my students though was from uh, is from the Middle East, Palestine, and she had this thing on her keychain that I always noticed. Like, what is that? It's like a blue background with a circle in the middle, and she's like, "It's the evil eye, obviously." You know, it's, it's like we have it's all over the place, obviously. or it's a, it's a charm to ward off the evil eye. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, when I started poking around on this, and there's this. The Middle East, the Balkans, and Asia, this is a very common folk belief that, and it corresponds to, there seems to be an intuition that if you have good luck or fortune, that don't be too proud about it or talk about it because other people will give you the evil eye. And so you have amulets and charms that you do like you rub or you hang up so that you yeah. don't – what we would say is that you don't jinx it. There seems okay. to be a whole industry around this even in a article by Massimo Pilodoro in Skeptical Inquirer. Skeptical Inquirer. He mentioned this Italian TV personality, Juana, Juana Marchi, who made $32 million, or actually in, yeah. in American dollars, $43 million, just selling people protections from the evil eye. Yeah, a lot of the – there's a cottage industry and like – I guess you could call them good witch sorcery that protects you from the evil eye. Um, but it all seems to be linked to this notion that, that you don't – that and especially in like these communities where there's a tight-knit community, often marginal, poor, you don't want to be too uppity. Otherwise, somebody's going to take you down a peg. Uh, that is that they, they might want your new stuff or your, your brand-new hut or whatever. And so you don't even want to compliment your own kids or say my kids are good-looking or my wife's good-looking because when you jinx it, it's going to invite – there seems to be this impression of a social jealousy, envy phenomena that mm -hmm. you would invite by talking too much about it or by being too proud. And that's supernaturalized into some sort of force from the glare itself? Yeah. So the, the eye aspect is that the, there seems to be that, that analogy. The metaphor is that the envy comes through the gaze. So think about in the Bible, like these, all these prohib prohibitions against coveting. What's the big deal about coveting? Mm -hmm. that, should that be that much of a problem that I like the, uh, my neighbor's stuff, uh, his ass especially? But the, uh, <laughs> and there seems to be a recognition in those rules I, that the coveting – I covet my neighbor's ass. <laughs> that the, there's a recognition that the, that the envy itself is toxic in a close-knit community like that. You mm -hmm. don't want to invite other people's uh, sense that you're better than them. But the, what's interesting is that the opposite intuition holds true because it's almost axiomatic. If something bad did happen to me, especially like after I've been trying to you know, work hard and get stuff, it must have been because somebody took it from me. I invited the evil eye. Somebody hexed me. Mm. So in, in other words, that people um, assume that if a misfortune occurs, they perhaps brought it on themselves or somebody else in the community did it to them because they were envious and jealous of them and wanted to hex them. And you might think, well, how do you, you know, that seems to be fairly esoteric. How would you research that? But there's actually some empirical studies where it's specifically uh, people take actions because they seem to recognize that if there are other people giving them bad sorts of envy, you want to placate them mm. by doing something friendly or pro-social so that, yeah, I, I just won the lottery, but I'm really a generous person. I'm going to buy everybody this stuff. In fact, in some of these communities, I was, you know, the Ebola outbreak has been going on. A lot of the beliefs work against development in the communities because nobody wants to be 
too successful. Yeah. Uh, and if you because if you do, sometimes it's more of a burden because then you have to buy your neighbor the thing and you have to get your cousin the thing and um, these people come out of the woodwork and if you don't get it for them, you're viewed as being not a team player, as being stingy. One of these uh, one of these articles you're about to talk about in a moment. Uh, talked about uh, Polynesian fishers. They were studied in the 1940s. One Western observer noticed that when a fisherman caught a fish but the others didn't, he would throw his fish back because if he didn't, everybody else would be talking about him negatively at the village. And they even had a a concept in in their language for this. It was called Tepe Te Kiamo, the blocking of envy. If you've ever had Anthropology 101, that a lot of the native cultures have this potlatch ceremony where... You, you throw a party and give all your crap away to everybody else. In fact, the big man of the village was the guy who gave away the most stuff. And sometimes this became problematic because it led to a, rate, a competition to give all your crap away. And you could see how it could be almost a burden like, oh, Jesus, I just killed you know a hog. I have to feed everybody. Right. You almost would rather not. Yeah, you almost don't want success in that scenario. Well, our- but, but as far as going being more pro-social then, if, if you're successful, something good happens to you and you're afraid people are going to be envious. I think the key point is they they don't become generally more pro-social. Nope. They become only more pro-social towards those who could possibly affect them negatively through their envy. Yeah, the the empirical studies, the lead author is Vanderven, and their study was called Warding Off the Evil Eye. When the fear of being envied increases pro-social behavior – what they did was uh, – you're correct. They, they had a bunch of different scenarios to try to weed out these other interpretations like the one you mentioned is would be a noblesse oblige. Like maybe people are just in general generous when they have yeah. good fortune to people good who don't have happen. it. I'm going to give back. But they, forward. when they messed with the conditions a bit, they found out that it wasn't just any old benign envy or like – giving it to the poor person that motivated the pro-social behavior. It was specifically when the people were afraid of being maliciously envied. That is when they thought the other person might actually do something about it or didn't like them because they were of different statuses. That motivated the behavior to be pro-social, like helping them or whatever like that. Right. So their, their successes are in a sense a liability Social well, you can view it as being a – think of this from an evolutionary perspective. It serves a group function to tamp down any sort of dissent that if somebody is successful, you worry a little bit about other people envying that. And yeah. you want to you calm the waters before there could be any dissension by saying, oh, I'll give you this and I'll give you that. Mm-hmm. But yet benign envy is a, is a good thing. You know, benign envy inspires people to improve their own situation. So I, I see – Justin's looking rather ripped today. I want to go to the gym more often or something like that. I'm just making that up. You know, to the listeners, we will post the pictures on the website. I am, I am a twig. Uh, well, yeah, we have a, a growing, like, uh, fan base that now apparently sexually objectifies Justin Schieber now. That's not true. He's <laughs> inviting Melissa Sandby from me. I've seen it. I've seen it. I used to be the pretty boy, and now it's him. Anyway, so this is where you get the um, – this to go back to the witches. Witches, if you want to think about it, are the mechanism – of this delivering of hexing or uh, the envy embodied into people like that because people would assume, let's say you get your new cow or you fix up your hut and then it burns down and the cow sours or whatever, you th- the intuition seems to be who did this in my immediate group. They're, they must have looked at me, at me with envy and let's designate a causal agent there. It must have been a witch. So that's where you see in these sociological studies a lot of the identification of witchcraft as like a group contagion, a witch hunt. That's where you hunt down people that are presumed to be responsible for misfortune. Mm -hmm. 
because the intuition is somebody must be responsible. It just can't right. be random. You know, lightning bolts don't just come from the sky. And so this gets into the, the, the second part of the, what I wanted to talk about. And this is something I've been trying to – I was thinking about introducing for a long time because I, it's a very interesting theory. But it's called moral typecasting theory. Typecasting meaning that just like in the drama industry, certain people become associated with types of roles that they might find it very difficult to not be seen as that role. You know, when you cast Leonard Nimoy, you're getting Spock. He's not like Mel Gibson. Let that sink in. Anyway. But, uh, but moral typecasting theory merges together other things that I've talked about in this show with things that are very low-level psychological processes like theory of mind, for example, why we attribute that other people might have mental qualities as opposed to a rock, you know, that you're somebody with independent thoughts. But it also links together that moral typecasting is that the things that elicit these attributions about mind – are specifically moral situations, situations with a moral component like a flood where somebody was killed, not just my toast got burned, or, or fortune, like, you know, I just won the lottery as opposed to, you know, I just found a parking space. So what moral typecasting theory is it combines a lot of this stuff into this, the central hypothesis is that we assume that in a, any given situation that has a moral connotation, there must be an agent that intended that, that has minds. It's not just random stuff. If something happened that had of great moral importance, it was intended. There must be an intentional agent. And so the typecasting part, though, comes in that we basically have a two-dimensional, two different axes, if you can picture that in, in two-dimensional space, of either on one axis, the agent's ability to experience things. So like to suffer or to think about something. A high experiencer would be somebody who can feel and be conscious as opposed to at the other end, low experience would be like a rock. There's no, yeah. there's no mental activity. Crossed with the other dimension of agency or activity, things do things. So a high agent is somebody who's like you know us basically. We have intentions. We do things. A low agent would be helpless like a baby or a robot or a uh, – well, I guess robots could be moderate. Yeah, or they were kind of middle. A line. vegetative person would be a, a, right. a, a low agency. A dog might be low agency. So this theory that's advanced by uh, the late Daniel Wegner from Harvard University and then one of his students, uh, Gray. But they have this theory that the uh, the these two-dimensional aspects lead to typecasting because – and here's where the religious connection comes in. They found oddly enough that God seems to be all agency and no experience, that when people think about what God does, it's he you know, smites or benefits or grants boons, but he doesn't feel anything. I, I thought that was the strangest thing of, of the study, but they – I mean, they seem to back it up pretty well experimentally. They, they uh, ask these questions, right, and they split them into attributes of experience versus attributes of agency. Yeah. And, yeah, the, it, they found pretty consistently people view God as hyper in control and doing everything, but almost not at all. They didn't attribute emotional experiences to him at all, which really got, cuts across the grain of my experience. Mm. Yeah, but but the respondents to this, it was a significant number. It was in the thousands, I think. Well, there's a bunch of different studies that they combined, and you could actually, if you Google this, you could probably see their little image of the two-dimensional model there and the different axes, and they show things like you know your your attributed agency and experience to you is we're high on both. I perceive myself as both experiencing and acting. The opposite of both would be inanimate objects. So a low experiencer and a low agent would be like a rock or something like that. But yes, so they also had things like does a vegetative person 
experience things or an embryo or whatever. And those people were high uh, on uh, you know, experience but low on agency. That is, they didn't do anything, but they had the capacity to suffer. Like, so here's where the typecasting comes in, though, is that is why would God be attributed low experience? Because in many situations, his, he's the moral author. He's the agent that does the doing. And because of that, we diminish his mental capacity to experience things, to suffer. And even not just God, but also things like Jesus, the saints, witches. Since they're authors of moral consequence, they can't also be sufferers of other people's actions. And this was based on a distinction they made in the theory between the agent and the patient. Yeah, in any uh, given the situation. Is, is the recipient of harm or benefit. And the agent, right, he doles out the harm or benefit. And they said that uh, the way we typically think part of this typecasting is that we mostly see somebody in one role or the other. In any given situation. So, so if the patient – if you are receiving harm or benefit, you can't be the agent. The reverse with God is since God is doing – is so robust in his agency, yes. he must not be a patient in any sort of way. And so we uh, – this somehow explains the reason why we don't attribute emotions to God. But maybe that's why – where I got a little confused. Think of it situational though. In any given play, mm-hmm. you can't play the same role. In fact, we think it's remarkable when characters are evil but also suffer like Walter mm-hmm. White or something like that. It, it sets up a conflict. Is he a, a victim or is he an agent? Yeah, we tend to want to see one of those as more dominant. Right, and so where it comes to situations like we've been talking about here where you have why would somebody generate uh, a just world theory or a witch? To, why can't you just say stuff happens, it's just random? There seems to be uh, a, a – it sets up an intuition that if there is a moral patient – somebody who suffered, let's say, there must have been an agent who caused that suffering. There must have been because there's no way that you can have just one thing, one patient without an agent. And so we seek to find one. You're the witch. You must have been the agent, the cause of Justin's suffering. If he's suffering, you must have done it. We always complete in the other side. We we fill it in because otherwise it's an unbalanced diet. And it works the other direction too. And here's what I think is creative about this theory this dyadic structure of morality means that any isolated, either an agent or a patient, somebody who suffers, it compels people to complete that moral dyad by inferring the presence of that complementary type. And so this is what explain this theory is, explains actually a lot because it explains why people who think that who generate harm from situations that you and I might not think is harmful. If you've determined already, people often have the opposite thing. Like people first come to the conclusion that abortion is harmful. And then they think about it or like marijuana must cause some problem. But it's actually this theory would say it's the other way around. You first have a moral reaction to it. Yuck. I don't like pot smokers. I don't like abortion. I don't like gays kissing and getting married. Then you fill in, well, there must be a harm. I'm going to find it. And then you generate all these other things. Mm. Those things that they say are harmful about abortion, pot smoking, gays kissing were generated after they had the moral reaction. Mm And they obviously don't want to think of it that way, that they want to talk the other way, that I've determined through my research that that gay marriage is harmful or that pot smoking causes problems. Therefore, my moral reaction is based on that, but it's not. It's the opposite. Yuck first, then there must be a harm because I don't like it. It's a moral action, so therefore it's harmful. They have an immoral agent and they're trying to find the patient who's been given harm, basically, completing the dyad. Now, so this is all really 
theory-driven, this stuff. Uh, what, what kind of empirical support do we have for this? Yeah, so they did a series of studies from the, ranging from, like, on one hand, the correlational. One thing that we've talked about in the show before is why does religion seem to thrive in harmful environments or, in, you know, the environments, places that suck, basically. They would say that, that you know, religionist belief is higher in things like countries or states where they're suffering because people generate agents to account for the suffering, the Swedes do not need to have anthropomorphized gods because they don't, their life is pretty good. And there's no suffering to complete that diet. So that's on a correlational level. You could, that fits in with it. But they've done experiments where they varied things like you know, uh, a scenario where people are having a picnic and then there's a flood. And the flood can either be very benign, like it just ruined their lunch, mm-hmm. or disastrous, the family was killed or something like that. And then what caused the flood? They had variations here. It was a malevolent dam worker who deliberately did this or unclear where you get the god attribution is in the combination of two things great harm family died and then unknown cause so if i have somebody specifically already that's an obvious cause of it i don't invoke a god explanation i know why it happened Mm -hmm. it was the guy who did it but if it's unclear what caused something and let's face it a lot of the things that you see which attributions are is like you know cancer sickness whatever it's unclear what caused it and of great harmfulness or great moral import. Mm-hmm. So in, in the experiments, they found that this, this sort of attribution of mindfulness out there doing things, smiting things, it needed a particular combination of, you know, it wasn't just my toast got burnt yeah. and therefore the witch did it. It had to be important and then ambiguous as to the cause. Also, good things too. So, you know, things that yeah. get better when, you're, when your tumor goes away, it's not often clear why that happened or right. whatever. Though they did seem to indicate that the we pay more attention to the negative in this. In yeah, this that's realm. a classic negative bias because, I mean, even again, evolutionary wise, you think about that, it's, you, there's more benefit to look out right. for things that might sure. hurt you to avoid rather than things that help you. Yeah. And they, there was a separate study that Wegner's team did, uh, the lead author is Ward, where they actually looked at this whole notion of attributing mind to things that are usually thought of as mindless, vegetative patients or robots or things like that. Why would somebody think that it could harm you to pull the plug on you if you're brain dead? We sort of talked about this earlier. Or like, you know, could you hurt a robot? And what they found was is that, and here's the paradoxical aspect of this, if they give people scenarios like, let's say so-and-so's brain dead, they're not coming back, the machine's keeping them alive. Do they suffer if somebody would be like cruel to them, like poke them with something or, you know, shock them or cut their food off. It turns out that the scenarios in which the act was done intentionally, a malevolent nurse at the home where you, the patient is. So you know you have your agent. There's an agent who did it on purpose. They attributed more mind to the victim when the harm was intentional as opposed to when it was unintentional. The really? plug, the power yeah. went out, and so the machine huh. turned off, and then he starved. They created a patient. They created a mind that experiences when there was a deliberate harm, but not when there was not deliberate oh, harm. That's, really uh, that's what is really interesting about this as opposed – I mean we've talked a lot about our overactive agency detection. But we've usually looked at just that one aspect, you know, our our, uh, ability to – we want to see epic events being for some sort of purpose, tied to some sort of agency. Uh, This is really interesting where we go in the opposite direction, where we can actually already have an agent and and create a – I guess you would say instead of agency detection, what we're looking here at is patient detection. We're overactively looking for a victim. 
Yeah, the, the part of it does might seem to contradict what we've talked about before on the show of dehumanization literature, the, the tendency of if somebody suffers to think of them as less mm, mindful, yes. less capable of suffering. So like Jews were thought of as being like vermin in camps because the Nazis were making them suffer. Mm. This is different from that because that's um, those people already had some amount of mind to begin with. That is, if somebody already has the capability to feel, we do dehumanize them when they suffer, inconsistency with just world belief. That is, if something bad happens to you, you know, you must have deserved it, you scum, whatever. What this is suggesting is things that don't have any mind ordinarily or you know, a rational person would say a robot that cannot feel pain mm-hmm. except if somebody intends to harm it. And yeah. then suddenly we attribute – we start to inflate that person – the the victims right. inflate their capacity to suffer because of the intentionality of the act. Mm-hmm. If you're always looking at the agent and trying to, with theory of mind, predict what they're going to do, why would an agent attack or try to do harm to an inanimate object? It's, it's almost like a kind of piece of evidence that that object must have some mind or feeling yeah, if trying, we're going to take the time to do something immoral to it. I was trying to think of a time where I might have felt this intuition, and here's what I came up with. Have you ever seen the movie AI that came yeah. out about 10 years ago uh-huh. where the robots were you know, uh, in society and very sophisticated, but they didn't experience emotions unless you specifically activated the program that they did? Do you remember that there's a group of people that tormented robots? They seem to have like a demolition derby mentality yeah. where they blew them up and did stuff. I was thinking that if you had a robot in front of you where you accidentally they, – they accidentally got their arm ripped off by something like that, it wouldn't elicit for me an ouch response if nobody intended it for that to happen. So like mm-hmm. you know, their arm gets lopped off by a thing. I'd be like, oh, are you OK? Yes, I am fine. But that scene <laughs> where they were tormenting the robots on purpose, like the crowd was cheering yeah. and they were tearing them apart, did evoke an emotional reaction for me. Yeah. And I'm thinking, why would that be the case? Either yeah. way, the robots can't feel anything. They're just robots and they're just – they're like, oh, OK, my arm got ripped off. You see but the sadistic intent. The sadistic intent on the part of the person doing it matters when yeah. we attribute the suffering of the victim. It makes it a moral thing and therefore we make the victim into a – into, uh, you complete something. the moral story, yeah, essentially. Yeah. Basically, we fill in the other side of the dyad. So, yeah, that was really – that was interesting information to back that up. But So they did this with a corpse? Corpses, robots, vegetative patients, people in these scenarios, when they were evaluating them, they gave them more mental properties, not just unidimensional things, but they were capable of pain, hunger, you know, loneliness, if the harm done to them was deliberate. So putting it together what we talked about with the other studies, that there, there's, that was, there seems to be this dyadic structure in, to tie it together with what we talked about with witches and the evil and things like that. If we seem to be set up to perceive actions as requiring a, an author, an agent, causing them if we perceive the outcome as being moral mm-hmm. in consequence. So you know, if my – ox dies or my hut burns down in my village, we look for a responsible person because we find it very hard to understand why that would happen since it's so important and I think could happen without a cause, without mm-hmm. a person causing it, an agent. Yeah. The whole idea of envy and the evil eye, we, we mentioned at the beginning this distinction between a kind of benevolent envy and malevolent envy. So benevolent envy just inspired people to uh, – uh, improve their own lives to get up to the same level as the person they're envious of, whereas the malevolent kind might inspire attacks, uh, reprisals of some sort. The study noted that the thing that 
changes our envy from benevolent to malevolent is how deserving we thought the person was. If we, if we thought that they deserved all the good things that happened to them, envy was more benevolent. If, on the other hand, we felt that it didn't, you know, didn't, we didn't deserve it at all, uh, that person was just benefiting from the cosmos, it's attributed to something else. Yeah, you see that difference and, culturally, too. I yeah. mean, like in, in America, we seem to be a little bit of an outlier like capitalist countries where the reason that we don't murder the rich in this country, we admire them, is because we see them as deserving, even in the face of all rationality. Yeah, if you won the lottery or the lottery of life, if you are born on third base and thought you hit a triple, we, think, we still think, oh, that person must have deserved it, uh, which is perverse because we know that differences in wealth and success happen randomly. In other parts of the world, like, um, like let's say uh, you might remember like in the UK back when things were pretty – uh, in recession in the 80s, like the punks and things like that, they you did not want to be caught by uh, you know a gang of punks because they resented successful people. If they saw that's the difference between Britain and the United States. Then is that if they saw a nice person driving a nice car, they'd want to steal your car and and punch you for having that. In the United States, we want to be that person, mm-hmm. you know. But there are other countries. We're the outlier. The more traditional societies, they do get resent, especially in close knit communities. You yeah. do want to. Uh, they do have this notion of who do you think you are, right. rather than oh, attaboy. I think you're better than yeah. us. Yeah. yeah. One thing to take away from this is that this is a very human impulse. It's this is tragic circumstances that this uh, when this happens, but it's a very natural human impulse. It takes a lot of critical thinking and research to understand what's going on and to maybe stand back from it. And view the situation more objectively. But then superstition uh, and metaphysics comes in and turns these into real entities. This is the evil eye or this is the, the witch's curse. Well, I was or, thinking about that when we, when we talk about some of the be- horrible things that can happen to these children or people mm-hmm. designated as being witches. Like how could somebody try to burn them alive or pound a nail into their head or whatever? If you think about it, if the, if the intuition is that those people are witches, they're powerful. They can't, therefore, they can't suffer. They can't be a moral patient if they're a moral agent. If this mm-hmm. child is thought to have killed my other kid, they can't really suffer that much. They don't have empathy for that person because they're So part they, of me they're active. wonders if there's a problem with this where, I mean, if you look at what they do to witches and to other undesirables, they a lot of it seems to be uh, torture activity that seems to be uh, done in, to harm someone. In the sense, not not just preventing the actor from acting, yeah, you know, the agent from acting. You're you're actually trying to increase, um, you know, their pain essentially. Yeah, there's this in some of these articles. The authors talk about stories from like medieval Europe where right. if a pig caused the death of a person, you know, let's say the pig ate, ate a kid in the night, or like a horse accidentally stumbled and crushed somebody, they would try them in court and then hang them or like torment the animals to death or something like that to punish them. Whereas we would say, well, why are you, it's just a dumb animal. It didn't even intend to do that. Mm-hmm. But if the, again, if the outcome was horrible, somebody died, okay. they attributed that that must have been intentional and that we have to make them suffer as well as just like, okay. you know, okay. it was an accident. Yeah, I, was, I was not making that connection. 
And I would imagine you would see that too with robots or d- your devices. If your device causes you a major thing like loses your dissertation or, you know, drops your phone call and then your girlfriend breaks up with you, you have Actually, a tendency. Yeah. You, you would <laughs> scream at it and say, what the hell, blah, blah, blah. You wouldn't just say, it's just a device. Wait a second. I have been attributing agency to my uh, devices for their moral wrongdoing. Jeremy, you've been neglecting me. I can't <laughs> you, find you, Dr. Crazy. Your new technology as of recent, though. Well, yes, I've been giving it uh, moral status as an agent. <laughs> well, if you want to see, actually, in all seriousness, if you want to see, like, the movie Her deals with some of those issues. I want to see that. Yeah, so well, what happens when you have a, a program or operating system that has basically is developing sentience? How would, what, how would we react to that, and what sort of leeway would we give it in terms of what it wants or what she wants or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> Can't really say more without spoiling. Yeah, I don't want to know again. Well, that's going to do it for God Thinks Like You. Before we end the episode, Justin Schieber brings to us this week's counter-apologetics. Hide your faith from the light of reason. It's now time for counter-apologetics. So, you have a new family that moves in next door. And on the same day... This family buys a brand new car. Now, you just happened to be reading earlier that day that this particular model scored the highest in its class in every single safety measure across the board. And you also happen to know that this car costs significantly more because of that high safety rating. I'm giving them the evil eyes. (laughs) There you go. Now, from this, you reasonably infer that your new neighbors probably care a great deal about the safety of their family. But then, of course, you move in closer and you realize that the child's safety seat is attached with duct tape. So, you know, you can have this general fact about this family having paid extra money for this, uh, this very high-scoring, safe car uh, being evidence for the hypothesis that this family cares a great deal about, uh, about each other. Uh, while at the same time, you can have more specific facts, mainly the duct-taped car seat, being evidence against that hypothesis. Now, if, say, somebody was in a position to know uh, both of these facts, but yet they presented an evidential argument that appealed only to the general fact, mainly the fact about the car and the high safety rating and the increased cost of that car, uh, if they appealed only to those facts uh, in arguing that the family clearly cares about uh, safety then they would have an argument that seems like a strong argument, but they would be guilty of what Paul Draper calls the fallacy of understating the evidence. In this original scenario, what should we weight more heavily, the general fact or the specific fact? The general fact should be weighed more heavily. Why? Well, because the specific fact takes as part of its background knowledge the general fact. Okay. Here's what Paul Draper says. He says, the fallacy of understating the evidence, he goes, quote, by this I mean that they successfully identify some general fact about some topic that is more surprising on naturalism than on theism, but then all too conveniently ignore other more specific facts about that topic that, given the general fact, are more significantly surprising on theism than on naturalism. Yeah, so we, we could discover a variety of specific There's facts There's a whole bunch family. of them. And at some point, when you start realizing, you know, there's lead paint around, they haven't cleared out the asbestos, kids are playing with plastic bags over their heads, and that's fun time for them. 
eventually your specific facts will will overpower your general facts. In psychology, there's theories of licensing, though, where if you buy a nice, safe vehicle, you might feel licensed to have an unsafe car safety seat so the two things could be linked. That is, if you feel you're, that you did so much work and you're strong on one aspect. Don't bring your you, science into my philosophy. <laughs> <laughs> Don't have any empirical grounding with reality. We're <laughs> no, talking I, – I, I think though, though that, that works. Maybe somebody thinks their argument is so good in generals that they omit the specifics. Yeah, well, and, That's true. And that's one reason why we wouldn't let just one specific fact override the general fact right. either because of those types of situations that you just brought up. Uh, we are weird human beings and uh, nature is somewhat anomalous too. And right. It all comes in degrees. Things, yeah. There's not one completely – but um, if you get enough specific facts to mount against that, yeah, uh, we might say it's the other way around. They bought the car because they felt so bad about the lack of safety in every other area. Mm-hmm. Right. So again, uh, Paul Draper is arguing that this tendency to understate the evidence is a pretty core feature to a lot of theistic arguments. So many will argue that the general fact that conscious creatures exist is very unlikely on the assumption that naturalism is true, right? Antecedently, right? So if you kind of abstract away all of our observations and you just think about a causally closed system, would we expect, given the processes that we know about, would we expect intelligent agents? We wouldn't really. It's pretty It's pretty darn surprising. Um, But on theism, it would seem that such a thing is pretty predicted under that, right? Where you have a, a moral agent... Um, who wants to create other moral agents to be in a relationship with. So on theism, the existence of intelligent life isn't at all surprising. Checkmate, atheist. The, the issue, of course, is is the question, does it ignore more specific facts that seem to undermine that evidential inference? And the answer to that is, is of course, yes. Specific facts, like, for example, that personalities and a sense of self are highly dependent upon physical brains, which, given the general fact, are very unlikely in theism. Another example of this kind of strategy, many will argue that religious experiences are less likely on the assumption that naturalism is true and more likely on the assumption that theism is true. But again, this would ignore specific facts about the topic. People who have religious experiences usually have pre-existing religious beliefs. Their visions match their are their cultural contexts. Cultural context. Exactly. It provides a schema to interpret yeah. any subsequent experiences. So all these specific facts, yeah, they start severely undermine the, the look very different. So on these kinds of issues, once you take on board, you you know, you take on board the general fact that is being originally proposed in the argument, but then you also bring on board the specific facts that are countervailing. Uh, It's not at all clear at the end of the day, once you take into consideration all the evidence relevant to that topic, that it significantly counts as evidence for theism. I don't know that I would necessarily want to argue that it would count against theism, but it's clearly undermining any kind of interesting argument there. Contrast these arguments with, say, some of the more powerful arguments for atheism. So the divine hiddenness argument, you have the general observation that there are you know, reasonable non-believers, right? But then you take on more specific facts, like that these beliefs are geographically distributed in a, in a way that is unexpected or surprising on theism. On some of these more powerful atheistic arguments, you have both the general and specific facts uh-huh. aimed in the same way. Same with problem of evil, right? You can have, you know, these kinds of suffering that seem like there's no real good at justifying reason. But then you also have facts about how pain and pleasure are intricately involved with one's ability to, you know, uh, reproduce and, you know, all this kind of stuff. 
they're they're biologically intricate and yeah. involved in, in that. Which is another argument from, of Paul Draper's that we should get into one day. And, and there's actually a whole list of of these things. And Jeff Lauder of the Secular Outpost has, has categorized the, uh, the entire list. It seems of of the kinds of things that Paul Draper seems to be suggesting Ooh. are guilty. I see a philosophically heavy Interview. episode in our future. That might be fun <laughs> to go over all these situations where it looks like it's mm-hmm. protheism. But as soon as you scratch that surface, yeah. So in dealing with in theistic arguments, it's always important to accept the general premise if it's true. You know, if it's the case that this that the observation they want to focus in on is evidence for theism over naturalism, then allow that. But also say that that's not the end of the story. There's other more specific facts that. If we take that into consideration, it might be the case that their argument is completely uninteresting because it doesn't really appear to uh, point one way or the other at the end of the day. Now to the fine-tuning argument. That the cosmological constants of our universe are within an extremely narrow life-permitting range is a kind of central premise behind one of the more popular contemporary design arguments, the fine-tuning argument for the existence of God. Now, I don't actually have the scientific expertise to examine whether or not they really are within a narrow range. And there's also other concerns about, about whether it's even coherent to talk about a narrow range when the upper limit is infinite. But that's a whole other issue. <laughs> what constitutes narrow on an infinite scale? So, so we can say that, okay, you know, if, if the scientific facts that they're appealing to are actually true, then that would count as evidence for theism, it would seem. And against naturalism, because it'd be very surprising on naturalism. Um, but of course, there are more specific facts again that are that seem to be strongly countervailing. So first, given that intelligent life of some sort exists, the fact that the vast majority of the universe is hostile to life is much more probable on naturalism than on theism. And of course, the, it's also the fact that the universe isn't filled with intelligent life. These are these are things that. Uh, you know, given the kind of natural way that uh, God has apparently chosen to create the universe by, you know, turning these knobs in a special way, um, it seems awfully obscure that God is limited by knobs. You know, he should be able to have a universe that is proportional to uh, its mm-hmm. its central goal. Uh, secondly, given that intelligent life of some sort exists, the fact that the vast majority of life came about through the process of biological evolution is much more probable on naturalism than on theism. The reason why this is is because on theism, there are many more ways to bring about uh, intelligent agents than there are on naturalism. On naturalism, pretty much, you know, some kind of evolutionary process uh, is really the only way you're going to come up with the variety that we have. Um, But, of course, if that's the case, then the fact that it did come about through biological evolution, the, the variety of life, that seems to be a... An incredible coincidence that if God created the variety of life that we see, he just happened to pick the one option available on naturalism. It's an incredible coincidence, one might argue. Thirdly, this is uh, one that I've kind of been developing myself, is given the general fact that intelligent life of some sort exists, the fact that it exists as physical, biological agents requiring fine-tuning is much more probable on naturalism than on theism. So if the parameters of our universe are within an extremely narrow life-permitting range, the fact that we exist as physical creatures might actually uh, be countervailing evidence to the fine-tuning argument. So, of course, if theism is true, then there would exist an omniscient, omnipotent, and morally perfect 
non-physical person responsible for creating the universe. But of course, given the moral nature of the being that theism posits, there exists a strong antecedent reason or expectation that uh, she would create additional intelligent agency. So these would be contingent, morally free persons, you know, such that they might enter into a meaningful conscious relationship with God. But to say that theism contains within itself an expectation of additional intelligent agency doesn't really say much. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't tell us what kind, what kind take, yeah. of agency. On theism, the number of possible ways that intelligent agency could exist is just painfully large. Uh, if God exists, she surely could create physical, biological uh, intelligent agency. But this is not suggested by theism itself. After all, God could have created a physical, non-biological intelligent agency. For example, imbuing a pile of stones with agency, right? So if anyone saw the, the Noah movie, you have uh, these angels being kind of inserted, they're in these, this pile of rocks being inserted with uh, angelic agency. Yeah, why not? Where these rocks are walking around, you know, and, and they're, they're acting. They're moral agents. They can interact and, and have to react in morally that interesting. That was in The Hobbit, too. The, yeah. mount, the mountain rocks. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah, something like uh, Bishop Barclay's scenario where it's all just a mental world anyway. So yep, yep. So, yeah, the, the, the three options, I think, um, three broad categories, rather, are physical, biological agency, which we have ourselves or, you know, other great apes. Um, then you have physical, non-biological intelligent agency. So you could have, again, supernaturally animated rock people or a pair of anthropomorphic garden shears. Um, you could have, I mean, you could literally have anything. And then, of course, the third category would be non-physical intelligent agency. Right? There's no reasons why we should expect there to be a physical realm at all. In fact, antecedently, because God is immaterial, we have more antecedent reason for thinking that God that there would be a, an antecedent preference for non-physical agents. So it would be more intrinsically probable for that reason. Now, if I'm right about this, then on theism, it's at least pretty surprising that we should have physical bodies at all. Uh, given the fact that physically embodied minds do indeed exist, how likely is it that we should observe such precise life-permitting nomological conditions, right, under theism. Well, the omnipotence of God ensures that she's able to create and sustain embodied minds in any environment. So even if it were the case that there was a physical universe that was completely not finely tuned, it doesn't matter because God, through perpetual miracles, could sustain, could create and sustain uh, morally relevant agents in such a universe. So actually, they're going to use some sort of simplicity argument, you know, hoping that Occam's razor cuts both ways. Like, wouldn't it just be easier to make embodied right. consciousness? Well, well, I would say that it cu- that it does cut both ways because yeah. then you're brought back to just having immaterial. You know, you don't need right. physical. If if they want to take Occam seriously, then they should stick with the immaterial realm and find just physicalness at all. Fairly yeah. surprising. You know, again, the, the, the constants being within a narrow range, that's only naturally discriminatory. Right. Right. The, this is not something that – God's hands are not tied in this way. And so it follows from her omnipotence that she could, you know, do anything with perpetual miracles. So if theists are correct in that biological life cannot exist without either fine-tuning or supernatural intervention, that, then that's fine. But, of course, if naturalism is true, then supernatural – Intervention is ruled out by definition, and so on naturalism, 
given the fact that physical embodied intelligent agents of some sort do exist, the probability that we would find that we would also observe fine tuning is actually pretty darn surprising on theism. And so we have, as part of our background knowledge, the fact that biological life exists, the observations uh, recently made of supposed fine tuning actually favor naturalism over theism. And so this is, again, a specific fact. Uh, given the general fact that, you know, uh, that, that fine tuning w- would seem to, uh, you know, confirm theism over naturalism, you have the more specific fact that the kind of agents that we are mm-hmm. actually point the other way. So the fine-tuning argument against belief in God. Fine-tuning argument for naturalism. What you're embarking on. (laughs) I can certainly look at my own trajectory. It seemed to me that all the obvious clues that God must exist, whenever you studied more into the subject, it was just daunting to start to realize God isn't necessary for explaining any of this. I think that's largely the pattern of the show is that – you know, you can look at the very intuitive facts, but then when you actually get down deep into the details, it's quite a different picture. Bottom line, don't get down into details and think about it. Not if you want to remain a happy theist. Well, let's wrap up the show today with a uh, quick, uh, something we haven't done in a while, a stranger than fiction. Battle over whether Guru is dead or just meditating by Dean Nelson. (laughs) That's a great title. This is by Dean Nelson from the Irish Independent. I will just read directly from the article here. The the family of one of India's wealthiest Hindu spiritual leaders are fighting a legal battle over whether he is dead or simply in a deep state of meditation. Uh, The person in question is... I think it's Sriashtash Maharaj, <laughs> though that is so hard to say. Uh, he's the founder of the uh, the Divya Yoti Yagriti. <laughs> he's a founder of a religious order. Let's just say that. There's like three or four more words in that title, and I'm going to botch them all. But uh, he is very wealthy. His property is uh, estimated to be worth millions. And his wife and son say he died last January, January 29th of a heart attack. His believers, on the other hand, think that he's just in a state called samadhi, a very deep form of meditation, just moments away from enlightenment. They refuse to give his body over. They, they want to keep him in this state. Obviously, how do you keep a body fresh since January 29th? Well, they decided to take his body and put it in a commercial freezer <laughs> to preserve it for him when he wakes up. Which leaves open the question to me, how would you tell when he woke up? <laughs> right. If he wakes up, he's just like, um, I'm done now. Guys. <laughs> really fucking cool. Uh, so the Punjab police confirmed his death. But then the high court in Punjab dismissed the police report what? because they refused to issue legal decrees over spiritual matters and oh, decided boy. the government could not force the guru's followers to believe that he is so dead. So I wonder when someone's going to try and, and, and pass a, a bit of legislation that gives um, you know, religious exemptions to death in our country. Yeah, be exactly. <laughs> it's, it imposes a religious burden to say I have to bury this body. So far today, I've, in today in our Supreme Court. I've gathered that the rabbis in Israel have lobbied to keep you alive if you're blowing feathers on a ventilator. And now the gurus in India are lobbying to... Keep you alive if I'm just trying no, to keep there are no more they're, necessary conditions. They're taking pro life to the extreme here. Like <laughs> we refuse to believe that you're dead. 
Well, as you can imagine, his wife and son, who stand to inherit millions, are pretty pissed off that they can't get any legal mm-hmm. declaration that this guy's dead. And uh, who knows? He'll just sit in that freezer until what? just just they so you say, know, guys. They say it's I will a never die. Freezer like in their ashram. So I'm I'm assuming this is like a food storage area. Yeah. Like he, you just he's got like a you know a good package of pork chops right next to his head. Hey Maharaj, how you doing? Just <laughs> just, just get, opening this, just, just grabbing French fries. <laughs> Once again, maybe it's because I'm watching Simpsons Marathon, but it's like when Jasper went into Apu's <laughs> freezer and then, you know, see, come and see the frozen man. And he's in the middle of it. It's cold in here. <laughs> Turn up the... Uh, yeah, he's going to have bad freezer burn when he wakes up out of that. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions or comments, please leave comments at our website at doubtcast.org or email us at doubtcast at gmail.com. And if you don't already, make sure you subscribe to the YouTube channel, which is just Doubtcast. All right. And we will see you next time for Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. Uh, mainly in Nigeria and uh, – oh, shoot. Where was it? Do you want me to go through all the countries? You have the countries in front of you? I can list – I know. Uh, I can quit Google them. No, I just – I can name African countries and you tell me whether you recognize. Oh. Burkina Faso. No, there was like a major Mali. one where he uh, – Sierra Leone, Liberia, Togo, Gabon, Gambia, anything? Guinea, Cameroon, Congo, Mali, Mauritania. Western Sahara, Morocco. I'm just going to go around the horn here. Algeria. It is in the horn. Tunisia, Libya, Egypt, Somalia, Somaliland. I'm impressed. Ethiopia. Ghana. Eritrea. No, it's on the other side. Ghana. Uh, Ghana. Yes, Ghana. Okay. Oh. I'm impressed with your geography. I'll just go around the country. No. No. <laughs> Zanzibar. That's not a country. No. <laughs> Zanzibar. The Zanzibarbarians. <laughs> um, okay. <laughs>